Hey guys, welcome back to the LAX podcast. I'm your host, LA, and we are going to continue the book today. So today we're going to be reading chapters four, five, and six. So I hope you guys are enjoying the book so far. Um, You know, if you guys have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out to me on Facebook, or you can go on to my Instagram account, which is under chronic underscore physique. And then I also have some pictures that go with the book on its own separate Instagram account. And you can find that account at adversity equals opportunity. All right, guys, let's get right back into it. Chapter four, Rebel Without a Cause. Since I had no place to live, I contacted my uncle Gino. My uncle is one of a kind, to say the least. He's extremely loving, caring, and he will always put his family first. When you're around him, three things are certain. You'll laugh, have a cold one ready for you, and know that a meal is on its way. I went to his house and he said, listen, you'll always have a place here. You can sleep in the basement with the other guys. Other guys, I said, I have about six Mexicans who work for my landscaping company, and you can join them. They don't speak much English, and they're kind of goofy, but you'll have a place to stay. He took me downstairs to look at the living arrangements, which was literally six mattresses side by side, some of which had rigged curtains to provide a bit of privacy. There was a microwave and a refrigerator for food and beverages. The Mexicans took showers by connecting a hose to the sink and hanging it from the ceiling. I was desperate, so I told my uncle this would have to do for now. I was going to be the only American joining these guys, and they had to give me some respect since I was related to their boss. I have to admit, I was a bit scared. Some of these guys looked intimidating, but I had to learn how to survive and adapt. My uncle said, if you're going to live here with these guys, you might as well join the landscaping crew and make some money. I agreed that would be a good idea. This was going to be my first real job. I've never done physical labor before, and I didn't even know if my body would allow me to. He said to set my alarm for 5 a.m. and get in the trucks with the other guys. I never told the crew I had hemophilia, but I was ready for the challenge. I was ready to see if I can make it in the real world. The next day, I was thrown into the fire. We arrived at our first destination, unloaded the truck, and since they didn't really know how to use me, they gave me a backpack blow machine and told me to go blow some leaves. That's the way I took it anyway. They couldn't speak to me. I could tell that I was more so just in the way. The first few days were really rough for me. I wasn't used to that amount of time on my feet. My ankles got terribly sore and swelled badly. My competitive nature told me not to give up and to stop being a baby. So I just kept pushing myself. My body, on the other hand, kept reminding me that it didn't care how strong willed I was. It was still going to win. I felt like I had a constant battle in my head, me versus hemophilia. I was sick and tired of hemophilia controlling me. I was going to fight with everything I had in my soul. I remember many days working in excruciating pain. My coworkers would look at me and ask if I was okay. And I would just say yes, with pain all over my face and continue to working. I spent seven months working nine to 10 hours a day and got to know the other guys. At the end of the shift, the guys played soccer while I used to practice my swing or chip balls in the grass. The guys never saw anyone playing golf before, so they were a little intrigued by that. One of the guys knew who Tiger Woods was and said, oh, you must be the white tiger, Tigre Blanco. We all laughed, and from that day forward, they all called me Tigre Blanco. I even purchased a white tiger head cover for my driver and made that part of my brand. 
I actually really started to enjoy all the guys. And although we didn't speak the same language, we had fun talking about sports, life, and mostly girls are what they called green cards. This meant if they could find a girl to marry, they would give them permanent residency. I think I earned their respect because I did everything they did, including taking showers with a water hose hanging from the ceiling. During this rebellious stage of my life, I was also training at a nearby boxing gym. The head trainer took a liking to me and let me train there as much as I wanted for free. I always wanted to learn how to fight. I remember as a kid wanting to know what it would feel like to step in a boxing ring to fight someone, but I knew that wasn't something that I could convince my mother to let me do. Doctors would laugh at me and ask if I had a death wish. I kind of did during this time. I already lost everything I worked for my entire life. My mindset was, who cares if I die? I hate my life anyway, so I might as well live it to the fullest, doing whatever I want and not caring what the cost was. After about six months of training, I told my trainer I wanted to fight. He said we could do local promotions and, and see if I could find somebody with, this, um, with similar experience to match up with. Then I saw a poster for the Golden Gloves. It was the biggest show to sign up for. When I saw it, my eyes lit up. I told my trainer I wanted in that show. He didn't recommend it because those fighters were the best in the area, and most of them had five to ten fights already under their belt. I didn't care. I wanted in the tournament. Looking back, this was suicide. One good hit to my head could cause a bleed and kill me. I knew I was in for a fight of my life, and I trained hard. The Mexicans even helped me practice during our free time after work. And trust me, they didn't go easy on me either. Boxing is a prideful sport in Mexico. They were excited for me, not knowing I had hemophilia, of course. This was going to be my first time under the big bright lights with the full audience. And nobody could stop me. This is what I live for. The fight night came. And I had about 15 people in attendance screaming and cheering for me, including my mom, stepdad, uncle, brother, my cousin, and the Mexican crew from home. Before entering the ring, I warmed up backstage, hitting the mitts with my trainer, feeling fast and powerful. My fight was one of the last fights for the first night, so my heart was pounding, and I watched the other guys before me. I, really, I realized how big and skilled everyone looked. When it was time for my fight, I walked through the audience, up the stairs, and onto the platform stage. I could hear people cheering and betting on the fight. I saw lights so bright that I couldn't even see the people in the audience. I jumped up and down on the stage, trying to get adjusted to the bounce of the ring. I saw my opponent for the first time as he entered the ring, and he seemed to have so much more muscle maturity than me. I'm not going to lie. I was intimidated, but I told myself it was game time. I stared him in his eyes, and I was prepared to go to battle. The bell rang and I instantly had an out of body experience. It was really weird. I felt like I was watching myself from the outside looking in. As I approached my opponent, I took my first swing and he did too. I went with the jab and he led with a powerful straight right that connected squarely in my face. All I saw were stars. I had sparred a lot of people leading up to this fight and I had yet to get rocked like that. He unloaded on me as I was trying to gather myself the referee stepped in the middle and gave me a 10 count. He could tell I was lost trying to gain my sight again. I said, I'm all right. Let me back in. Even though I couldn't see straight, I had to work. I had worked too hard to quit now. 
I went back in with blurry vision. My opponent unloaded again on my face, thrown me into the ropes. This time he broke my nose. The referee jumped in and he called the fight. I couldn't feel the physical pain. The only pain I felt was in my soul. As I felt, I let everyone down, including myself. My uncle Gino jokingly told me he was angry because he ordered nachos. And by the time I lost, he had to sneak out, somewhat embarrassed by my early defeat before getting his food. I can always count on him for a good laugh. I was lucky to be alive with all the headshots I took. I quietly packed my bags and left the arena. I went straight home to infuse myself and to ice my face. I lay there thinking, I will never do this again. Boxing definitely isn't my sport. I think I'll stick to golf. God must have had all of his angels surrounding me that day as I walked out of the ring without severe head trauma. I I infused prophylactically before the fight and then again after I got home. It took me a few days to have a full recovery. However, my nose is still damaged to this day. I can't breathe right, and someday I will need to get that fixed. The next week, I went back to work as normal. I particularly remember this shift because it would shape the chapter of my life. It was a 10-hour shift, and my ankle swelled up so bad that I had to take my shoes off to finish the job. I couldn't communicate to my Mexican coworkers, and they were so confused about what I was doing and why I was limping so much. As we approached the end of the shift, I could barely lift myself into the truck to go home. I finally had to tell my uncle that I tried my best, but I needed to quit. Can't tell you how bad this hurt me to do. To me, this was yet another loss due to hemophilia. I had no idea what I was going to do next. Coincidentally, after that shift, we all went back home and drank beers like usual. But this time, we had a new house guest. His name was Rojo. Rojo was the manager of a restaurant. He looked at me and he said, why is this guy working landscaping? He's clean looking and he speaks English. He could probably make just as much working for me as a server. He immediately spiked my interest. I asked him to tell me more. He replied, stop by my restaurant Monday at 2 p.m. and I will have the hiring manager interview you. I replied, say no more and I'll be there. Clean myself up, showed up early to the interview on Monday and landed myself a new job. I was so excited to start this new job. And there was a driving range only two minutes down the street so I can go hit balls during my break or after work. Even though I didn't make it to college level playing golf, I still wanted to maintain my skills in case I ever wanted to compete again. I didn't know it at this time, but this job would change my life and take me on a completely unexpected new path. Chapter five, Dream Chaser. I started the new job at Krieger's. Krieger's was a local sports bar and grill that had seating for around 150 people. They had great pub style food and big screen TVs throughout the restaurant. When I started, they had about 12 other servers hungry to make some serious cash. Seeing their mentality had me focused to learn quick and be the best server I could possibly be. This was a new opportunity and it was going to be much easier than working landscaping for 10 hours a day. I studied the menu and I paid attention to everything my trainer told me. I knew I had to take a test in a couple of weeks, and if I passed, I'd be able to start serving on my own and have a chance of making some really good tips. During my first couple of weeks, I couldn't help but notice a girl who kept looking at me. Her name was Sophie. I also noticed that every time she had a shift with me, she had her makeup and hair always on point. She had long, brown, curly hair, dark skin complexion, and a pretty smile, and a contagious personality that had every customer smiling and wanting to talk longer. Throughout my young adult life, I only had one girlfriend who I met in junior high. 
to say I wasn't comfortable talking with girls is an understatement. I thought she was beautiful, but I wasn't going to make a move. I would soon find out that she was a type of girl that would just go after what she wanted. I remember being there for about a month and I started getting into a habit of going to the driving range during my breaks. I still had dreams of playing golf at a high level, so I would practice as much as I could. One day, as I was getting ready to clock out for my break, Sophie asked me what I was doing. I told her I was going to the driving range and she asked if she could join me. Golf was usually a serious thing for me, but this time I decided to just relax and let her join me. We went to the range and I warmed up for about 10 minutes. Then I let her take a few swings. She had no idea what she was doing, but she was actually pretty good. We were laughing a lot and having a good time. And then I said something to her, a question that forever changed my life. I said, if I hit this next ball over the fence, you have to give me a kiss. I had her in my element. So that was the best attempt I had at flirting. I knew without a doubt I could hit that ball over the fence nine out of 10 times. I did and went for the kiss. It was just a quick kiss, but it was nice. I could tell that it made her really happy. On our way back to the restaurant, we, would, we were already talking about the next activity that we would do together. That day forward, it was safe to say Sophie and I now had a thing. We started hanging out every day. I would drive to her house and watch movies and eat candy. She was a wild girl, and she really found a way to loosen me up. I had never met a girl like her in my life. I was actually kind of innocent, and she definitely took it away from me. I kept working steadily at the new job and found myself practically living with her at her place. We were being wild and reckless kids together. Three or four months passed, and one day I got a phone call from her that I wasn't quite ready for. She said, I'm pregnant. I was shocked. I told her I needed to go, and I hung up the phone. I needed some time to process what she just said. I was only 19 years old. I finally called her back, and we talked about it. I told her everything was going to be okay. I reassured her that, you know, I was going to stay with her and we were going to do our best to deal with this. The next thought that crossed my mind was that if I was going to be a dad, then I needed to marry her. Of course, that's not always the answer, but I had no one giving me guidance on the situation. I went to the mall, chose a $1,500 ring and put it on a credit card. We spent the duration of her pregnancy together every day, getting to know each other, better and preparing for the birth of our new baby boy. Throughout this new stage of our lives, we both started to grow to love each other. As we, as we prepared for the birth of our son, we made a choice to move in with Sophie's cousin temporarily. After building a relationship with her cousin, I asked if we could do a double date or I planned to propose. I wanted them to be able to take photos as I got down on one knee. I made dinner reservations at a fancy spinning tower restaurant in the center of downtown St. Louis for the four of us. After dinner, we took a late night stroll to the gateway arch. Once I got right under the arch, I bent down on one knee and asked Sophie to marry me. We told our families and everyone was happy for us. We both agreed it would be best to have our ceremony before our son was born. We invited about 15 people from each side of our family. We had a small wedding under the arch where I made the proposal. Our son, Landon, was born on July 15th, 2008. After his birth, it was, it was time to start our new lives together. So we decided to lease a new apartment together. This would be a fresh start for Sophie and our new baby boy. We were about eight months into our one-year lease at our apartment. 
we started to think about what we wanted in life. I told Sophie that I still had dreams of being a professional golfer or even a local professional at a golf course. I found a school in Arizona where I can earn an associate's degree while majoring in golf course management. It was a crazy idea considering Arizona was over 20 hours away by car and we still talked about it. I even told her no, that I wasn't going to risk our financial security. Sophie replied, we're doing this. Sign up for the program and let's go. We had no sensible plan in place besides getting enrolled in school, renting a U-Haul and driving to Arizona. We found an apartment to rent online and made a commitment, a commitment to live there without first seeing it. We drove all the way to Arizona with our entire lives in this U-Haul and I was so scared. I now had to really man up and make this dream become a reality while taking care of my family. I was going to attend school, practice golf and get a job while she took care of our son. We finally moved into our new two bedroom apartment in Mesa. I moved everything practically by myself. I knew I would no doubt get a bleed and would need to rest for at least 24 hours before I could walk again. After all the moving, I infused and I and rested knowing the next important step was to go look for a job. At the end of my search, I ended up choosing a job as a server working the graveyard shift at Denny's. The routine would now be to wake up early, go to school and after school practice or play in tournaments, then go and get ready for my shift at Denny's wash, rinse and repeat. This was my big shot at redemption. So I wasn't going to complain. What I didn't consider was how hard it was going to be for Sophie to take care of her child and not having a single person there to help her while I was gone all day, every day. For the first time in my life, I made it a priority to never miss a day of school and to pay attention. One class I took changed my life forever. We were given a project to read a book and create a PowerPoint presentation on it. I hate to admit this, but I have never read a book in its entirety, mostly because I I had a problem. I couldn't comprehend the words when I would read them unless I went slowly. The book was called Success is a Choice by Rick Pitino. I was able to read this book a lot easier because it was about sports and because I wanted to prove myself at the new school. The message was like nothing I, I ever heard before. To me, my entire life had been failures that I blamed on my chronic disorder. But this book was telling me that success was up to me that it was as simple as making a choice and taking daily actions. I created my presentation using my new mindset and the teacher loved it so much. He even asked if he could keep it and use it as an, as an example for future classes. For the first time in my life, I felt unstoppable. I felt in control. I finished the semester and made the Dean's list. Can you believe it? This guy who averaged a 2.5 GPA in high school made the Dean's list. I was on time and made above a 3.5 GPA. My performance on the golf course was also the best it had ever been. I was shooting numbers in tournaments I'd never seen in my entire playing career. Still, I was barely cracking the top 10 in events. This was a huge wake-up call. The best players were on a different level than me. After the first semester, I was drained. The daily grind of schoolwork, practice, tournaments, and work was really taking its toll. Sophie wasn't happy at all. We had one huge fight that ended with her father taking her back to St. Louis. I was devastated. I was just getting started and feeling like things were going my way. 
she left with Landon. Now I had to make a choice on what I was going to do. I decided I would leave Arizona, quitting everything I worked for to return to Missouri and work on my family. We reconciled our differences when I arrived back to Missouri and decided to give it another shot with different circumstances. We rented a small two-bedroom, single-level house in her hometown next to her family. Things seemed to be going okay as we worked out our differences. Three months after being back, we got some big news. Sophie was pregnant again. Our second son, Blake, was born on August 7th, 2011. I tried my best to be a good dad and support us financially. Finances seemed to be a hot topic of why we fought frequently. I tried every job in the book to support my family and to be an understanding, responsible man. It wasn't quite that simple for me. I didn't have the education for a good paying job, so I had to choose jobs that required physical labor. But my body just wasn't made for that type of work. Still, I kept trying, and I would fight through the pain and the bleeds until the end. I would wake up for work, trying to put my feet on the ground, screaming in pain from working long shifts the day before. My wife was very supportive. She would wake up with me and make lunch and be as, as encouraging as possible. Every day seemed like the hardest day of my life. I would limp to my car and drive off to work with tears in my eyes. I landed a job in construction, doing demolition and cleanup. I never admitted to them that I had a chronic disorder because I was afraid they wouldn't hire me if I did. Every day, it was a challenge to portray that I was working hard and not in pain. Eventually, I was called into the boss's office and knew exactly what was going to happen. I was fired for not working hard enough. I went on unemployment. Throughout my marriage, I had at least 12 different positions and struggled at each one. I started sliding into a deep depression and had no idea how it was going to be possible for someone like me to make a living. I took out my anger and disappointment on my family and eventually divorced, feeling hopeless. I thought they would be better off without me. Chapter six, a new battle. I was now divorced and no longer thinking about my dreams. I had to focus on how I would make a living and pay child support. By, by networking with friends, I picked up a new gig as a car salesman. I heard about the earning potential and thought this might be a promising career opportunity for me. I could pay my child support, make a, dis, a decent living, and if I sold enough cars, I would be able to drive a demo for free. I sold eight vehicles in my first month. By the second and third months, I was selling in the double digits. My manager said they saw real potential in me for the industry. I was feeling pretty good about my new path. I was making the most money I had ever in my life, and I finally got to drive a demo car for free. Let me tell you, it was awesome driving a brand new vehicle compared to the one I owned. I was using some of the mindset principles that I learned in Arizona with my new job. I was making success happen for me. This was a desk job for the most part too, so I wasn't enduring as many bleeds just from working. This job seemed perfect for me. I started doing so well that I bought new golf clubs and started finding my passion for golf again. I wasn't a professional like I wanted, but I kept telling myself it wasn't over yet. I started getting used to this roller coaster ride with that hemophilia took me on. I learned to, to survive the lows and ride the highs. Whenever I found those high times, I would start dreaming again. I decided to set new goals to compete in the U.S. Amateur Qualifier, a very prestigious USGA regulated event. This could be 
a way that can find, find out how my skills transferred from Arizona to St. Louis. When I wasn't working, I was on the course, preparing myself for what I would say the biggest tournament of my life. I put my heart and soul into every session, knowing that I had to make a statement. I told myself this was my time. At work, my colleagues began teasing me because I was experiencing short-term memory loss. It actually hurt my feelings a lot because I didn't understand why I was even like that. I mean, I didn't think I was stupid, but that's how they made me feel. The bantering went on for a long time. I just did my best to ignore it, even though I didn't realize it was a legitimate issue. It was like I had a lack of clarity and ability to focus sometimes. I would later find out that what I was experiencing was a medical condition called brain fog. The brain fog hit hard the day of the U.S. Amateur. It was tournament day, and I was prepared for the biggest day of my life. I woke up early. I did my pre-tournament routine that consisted of stretching and organizing my equipment. I showed up to the golf course, and the vibes of being at that serious event immediately hit me. All the players were on the range, our putting green, getting warmed up, and the announcer was calling people to the first tee. I must have checked my tee time 10 times the night before, because the last thing I was going to do was to miss my time on the first tee when my name was called. I went to the range first and started warming up. I was hitting the ball beautifully and feeling positive about the day so far. Then I realized that everyone had a caddy and I didn't. I made no arrangements for anyone to carry my bag, which would have been a huge help considering my ankles are bad enough just walking. I shrugged it off and told myself it didn't matter. I needed to focus on the job at hand and deal with it. I then went to the putting green and practiced for quite some time. All of a sudden I heard LA Aguayo to the tee box on a walkie talkie. And it must have been the third time they called for me. I ran to the top of the hill where the first tee box was located, and I told the starter I was ready to tee off. As I saw my other three playing partners walk into the fairway, he said, I'm sorry, sir, but the rules state that you are now disqualified from this event. I was in shock. What happened to my mind that made me unaware of my surroundings at that time? How did I let this happen? I was so confused. I put my head down and I walked to the parking lot where my car was located. I opened up the trunk and I threw my, I threw my bag and, and I slammed the trunk out of anger. I worked so hard for months to just get disqualified. As I sat in my car, I started to cry hysterically and scream at myself. I even punched my dashboard. I felt so off. I knew something was wrong. I called the nurse from my specialty pharmacy in tears and said, something is wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but I need to be seen as soon as possible. She told me to calm down and relax and then made an appointment. I drove back home and I laid in bed to think about what just happened. The earliest I could set my appointment was in two weeks. When I went to my appointment, the staff ran some tests and based off of what I told them, the physician came back and said, why don't you come into my office? As we sat down, she said, we have some concerns about your liver health and the fact that you were diagnosed with hepatitis C at such a young age. Based off of the results, it looks like your liver is in the final stage of cirrhosis. I didn't know what that meant. Cirrhosis? She continued, we need to put you on a treatment plan immediately to stop the progression. She suggested three medications. One was interferon injections that would make me very sick. She recommended taking that for three months 
And then I would also have to take three months off of work to go through this treatment plan because of how sick that the treatment would make me. She said that most people don't work because they experience chills, vomiting, and overall just feel out of it. I decided to do the treatments. First, I had to battle my insurance company to pay for it, which took two weeks. During those two weeks, I went back home and back to work. I started to research everything the doctors told me. Based off my research online, I became scared for my life. It seemed that I was just steps away from needing a liver transplant and that most people don't even live much longer after a transplant. I was a young dad, and I was now I was fearing that my life was that my life was coming to an end. I read reviews about the treatment plan. They were all negative and discussed how horrible the process would be. I remember being at my desk, obsessed with reading more stories about the treatment and liver damage, and I started to cry. I tried working, but I just kept crying out of nowhere. I thought my life was over. I was so scared for my future. I eventually had to quit my job. I couldn't make it through a single day without breaking down mentally. Everything else now seemed pointless. I quit my job as a car salesman, and I asked my mom if I could live with her while I went through the three-month treatment plan. She said I could live in her basement and that she would help me battle the insurance company to make sure I got the treatment that I needed. My insurance company finally approved the treatment. I decided to vlog the entire experience. Maybe it would help someone one day. I figured I'm a strong guy, so I'll be able to fight through the symptoms and share my journey with everyone. The process consisted of one weekly injection each Monday. I took my first injection and I started to videotape myself. I remember being very optimistic through the first couple of recordings. I was lying in my bed waiting for something bad to happen, but I was feeling good. Then on the second day, it hit me. I started to feel the symptoms and I became very ill. I was shaking badly and constantly felt like I was going to throw up. The symptoms hit me hard and fast. I replayed the videos and thought I looked miserable. I can't show this to the world, I thought. I deleted all the videos and just told myself this is going to be three months of hell. Every week I had to inject my body with this drug and it was going to make me feel this way. Dealing with the symptoms of each interferon injection became harder and harder as the weeks went on. I was becoming more deeply depressed and started to lose hope in life. I felt worthless, as if I offered no value to anyone at this point. I endured the three-month treatment plan and successfully completed all the weekly injections. As the treatment concluded, I didn't seem to care what the results were. I didn't care if I was cured or not. My mindset was that I had enough because I was at my mental limit of what I could handle. I was done feeling like a lab rat. I had zero intentions of doing anything else past this point as far as going back for regular checkups. The last week of the treatment was a pivotal moment in my life. My mom had a huge mirror in the basement as part of her home gym. I stood in front of that mirror and I looked at myself with disgust. I stared into my own eyes and I asked myself, why do you wanna live anymore? I revisited my lack of value, my failed relationships, I focused on how pale and overweight I looked. I thought about all the adversity I've gone through in my life. And I questioned, why is it happening to me? Why does my life seem so hard to live? Why doesn't anyone understand me? 
All I had at age 26 was a failed marriage, no job, and was living with my mom again. I challenged myself to think of any time in my life that brought me true happiness and meaning. It took a few minutes, but I started to think about the times I volunteered at the Gateway Hemophilia Association. This is a local nonprofit organization that advocates for the bleeding disorder community. They hold special events throughout the year to raise funds for family resources and a yearly kids camp. I cherished the time spent with children with hemophilia, teaching them how to play golf. After taking time to reflect, I felt happiness in my heart, but I still believe that wasn't enough. I then asked myself, is there a purpose to my pain? Am I supposed to go through this? I mean, why else would God let me suffer like this my entire life? I remember saying to myself, it's time to make a choice. It's not sink or swim. It's sink or fly. I'm either going to end my life or I'm going to thrive on a level I never thought possible. I knew that if I could give myself purpose through this pain and think about helping just one person through my life experiences, then maybe I can allow myself to live. At that moment, it became worth a try. Still looking at myself in the mirror, I said, I'm going to be a leader in my community. Somehow, I'm going to find the way to that leadership position. But if I was going to be a leader, I needed to look like a leader. I needed to look different than everyone else. I wanted to walk into a room and without saying a word, I wanted people to know this guy is different. But that thought in mind, I realized I needed to get a gym membership and change my look. I'll figure out the rest later. All right, guys, that was really tough for me, actually. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to read. Um, so far, it's been crazy, you know, kind of trying to read these chapters. Um, and then when you add the emotion, it makes it even harder. So I hope that uh, I read it well enough for you guys to understand it. Um, hope you enjoyed those three chapters as well. Um, you know, that last chapter, that's, you know, that's where I, that's where my entire life changed. And, uh, the one thing that I would like, you know, you guys to do or to think about if you ever get to that position or hit rock bottom is to, you know, reflect and to ask yourself questions. I think that, um, the better questions that we ask ourselves um, it was, it's what provides us better outcomes in our lives so um, ask yourself challenging questions and do it frequently and, and be honest with yourself and i think through doing that that's you know a very um, positive start to making some big changes in your life all right guys um, i'm going to sign off and i will see you for the next three chapters